Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me. And me. So we're uh, months, more than a month, that would be months, into this thing of uh, sitting at home with our loved ones. And um, a lot of people have different ways of dealing with it. Some have cleaned or cleaned out their um, long, uncleaned closets and other crannies or their garages, if they're lucky to have one. Uh, others have um, started reading those books that were piling up. I started that. Um, still others have um, revived their stamp collections. I'm sure somebody has done that. A friend of mine confessed that um, in her OCDness, she had pre-prepared 42 dinners and was pulling them out of the freezer one night at a time. But what I'm doing with a lot of my time during all of this, well, besides catching up on my sleep, is watching that show every night, trying to figure it out. You know, uh, when (laughs) President Trump couldn't do his rallies anymore, it was like um, he was... was immediately shot into um, a near-Earth orbit with about half the oxygen. He just, w- without those rallies, he's, he's uh, not nourished in the same way. He takes nourishment from having others lavish crowd love on him. And I, look, I'm not knocking it. I, I, I understand the feeling. I've seen it up close. But... Um, so he d- he decided to do these every night, every evening press conferences. And I understood that strategy. And then I was trying to figure out what is the deal with what he's doing. Now, superficially, the premise is, oh, we're, we're bringing the experts and we're keeping you up to date on all the latest information on how great we're doing. But there's, there's a, a really interesting other pattern going on. I've noticed, because he comes out, (laughs) I'm talking about the president, he comes out and he first reads um, a statement. Of course, he never reads without interpolating some comments like, very important, which I, I think is either to personalize the text, which clearly was not written by him, or to give him a chance to pre-read the next sentence because he's not don't you know don't this is not a character flaw he's just not the world's best reader or second best so that statement tends to be a repetitious recitation thank you of what he said the day before and the day before that regarding 
closing the uh, closing off flights from China early is the boast, and how many deaths that saved. And if you cut that number of deaths in half and then cut that number of deaths in half again, you'd still have more deaths than we lost during the Civil War. That that little trope has been repeated, I think, three or four times this week in the opening statement. So there's a comforting sense of repetition, the familiar. And then there are the change-ups. So beginning of the week, he had total authority, absolute authority over the states in how this thing is handled from here on out. Then, next night, no, 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 it's the governors. The next night, and we're going to watch the governors because I have the authority to overrule anything they do if I don't like it. And then finally, at the end of the week, I think the people who are protesting against the governors are acting very responsibly. By the way, that activity included, according to the former governor of Michigan, of course, these pro- the, the main protests have been in Michigan, the former governor says that some of the protesters were handing candy from their ungloved hand to the ungloved hands of children. What do we tell the children? Your Uncle Dave gave it to you. So it's the familiar and the different in um, stunningly quick sequence. It's rhetorical chiaroscuro, isn't it? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If I come up with any less interesting theories on the subject, you know where I'll be. And now... News of smart houses and the things that make them smart. This is a message that was received by people who um, have smart dog feeders. Yes, there are such people. And I'm going to just share the whole message with you because it's so damn good. Dear PetNet users, we're currently experiencing a service disruption affecting the connection of Generation 1 and Generation 2 smart feeders. See, this is what happens to early adopters. We're working with outside partners, hopefully working inside, to develop a solution that will restore your smart feeders. Unfortunately, you may experience extended downtime as we negotiate through resource limitations affecting our partners impacted by COVID-19. During this outage, users may experience the following. One, inability to connect or reconnect smart feeder to Wi-Fi. Inability to control smart feeder functions from the PetNet app. Error with PetNet app app login screen. And smart feeder showing white light indicating smart feeder is online, while PetNet app shows offline. Scheduled automatic feeds should still dispense if the unit has not been powered off. End of the statement. Conclusion. Maybe the smartest thing to do is feed your own damn pet. Hello, welcome to the show.
years ago on this program, uh, you and I first made the acquaintanceship of Dr. Stephanie Kelton. At the time, she was uh, one of the leading public voices for a heterodox economic theory called modern monetary theory. Uh, She's had a couple of changes of jobs since then. She was the chief economist for the minority of the Senate Budget Committee for a good long period of time. And now she's professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And we're talking today because what sounded heterodox and weird and left field when we first discussed it, which is this thing called modern monetary theory, seems to be what's in fact going on today. Dr. Kelton, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Now, have you taken a victory lap lately? Because um, we're seeing governments both in the United States and the United Kingdom uh, spraying trillions of dollars through the economy, various programs, and uh, the words pay for it, or costing, as they say in Britain, are not being heard. Well, you're right, and there is uh, definitely something in that that puts a spring in my step. So um, I'm not sure I've I've taken the full victory lap yet, um, <laughs> but I, I definitely have an extra little bounce in my, uh, in my step as a consequence of finally breaking free of this question that so dogged us for, you know, the, the last year, 2019, of course, we had a very crowded field of Democratic hopefuls, presidential hopefuls, and at every turn, no matter how big or small the proposal was, they were confronted time after time after time with this question about how are you going to pay for it. And so what we've seen Congress do in recent weeks is um, reassuring because it uh, is evidence that Congress actually does remember how to pay for things uh, with, when they feel that there's a priority. How do you pay for them with dollars, right? Yeah, it turns out that it's pretty easy. Congress <laughs> uh, writes a bill and appropriates funding, mm-hmm. and that's how everything gets paid for. And that's how everything gets paid for all of the time, Harry. And that's a frustrating part of this is that it, it's not some new thing that Congress has discovered, some new power that it it granted unto itself. It is 
you know, a little bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, she discovers at the end of the film that she had the power all along. And this is the same. Uh, the same is true of Congress. They have always had the power to fund the things that they deem appropriate and, and a priority. Now, as I recall our discussions, uh, because the first thing that always comes up of when this um, idea is is floated is inflation and Weimar and now Venezuela. And as I recall our conversations and your, and your writings and the writings of your colleagues, um, the constraint is whether the nation's economic resources are fully employed, both uh, factories and personnel. And if they're not, uh, there's plenty of room for new demand. And uh, it's the new demand when all resources are already being used that causes inflation. Do I have that halfway right? You have it all the way right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Congress has the power of the purse. And Congress can write a budget and decide how much money it wants to spend on education and infrastructure and a variety of other things. And the relevant limit when it comes to congressional spending is how safely our economy can absorb those new dollars. If the government wants to put lots of people to work, rebuilding crumbling infrastructure, do Medicare for all, have lots more doctors and nurses, the question is always, well, does the economy have the capacity to supply those real resources to make good on that spending? Or is the government spending just going to compete with the private sector for resources that are already fully employed and thereby simply produce an inflation problem, bidding wars, driving up prices? So as long as the economy has what economists might say slack, as long as there's some unemployment, as long as businesses can um, respond to higher demand by producing more supply, then you have balance in the system and you don't get the inflationary pressure. The the risk comes from excessive spending. Would you say we have slack now? Well, isn't it just (laughs) unreal? I mean, you know, that's the thing. We've watched 16 million people, people. I mean, we see the numbers on the screen, but they're people. And their jobs are gone in the span of a few weeks. And the the really scary thing is that we're just getting started and that we're going to continue to see this. We'll see another jobs report come out at the end of this week and another one next week. And we are not doing a very good job containing the fallout as we've pushed pause on the economy. So, yes, is the answer. There are Um, There are estimates that the U.S. could end up with something like 30 percent unemployment, Mm. more a higher unemployment rate than we had during the Great Depression. And so, you know, we're talking about potential slack where you've got, you know, 30 percent of the labor force unemployed businesses shuttering, factories Mm. closing, shutting down, turning off the machines. So there's going to be an awful lot of slack. Now, from the standpoint of people who, like you, have been promoting this view of the economy, of how the the uh, post-gold standard economy uh, and, and the money system works, uh, as I say, there might be some reason for, if not cheering, at least a sigh of relief. But looking down the road, we may be seeing something else entirely. Um, the people who were deficit hawks, for, be- for lack of a better term, have not packed their bags and gone away just yet, I don't think. Might they be 
readying themselves to say, okay, you had this big splurge, now you must pay for it. Are we looking at a year or two from now, the great austerity? I I hope not. I don't know how else to answer your question. It is definitely a risk. Those op-eds are already being penned. They've already been published. Those voices have not gone away. I think you and I in the past have talked about billionaire hedge fund manager Peter G. Peterson, Mm -hmm. uh, who died not too long ago. But the legacy is very much alive. This man left behind a fortune. And those um, so-called think tanks and institutes are still very much operational. And those people have a job to do. And their job is to continue this drumbeat around the need to, quote unquote, deal with entitlements to fix the debt. Those people are out there and, you know, they're getting, they get quoted all the time in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. They turn to these people and they always give them some oxygen to insert this kind of commentary into the discourse so that right now what they're saying is, all right, we had a debt problem before. And because of the coronavirus, we had to expand fiscal policy. We had to run more deficits. We had to run bigger deficits. And we get it. We had to do that. And that's going to add to the debt. So once we get through this health crisis, on the other side awaits austerity. That's when we begin to go after the deficits, to begin to cut programs. And and their favorites are Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. And yes, I very much worry that um, there's going to be a battle, uh, a a very live and heated battle. I intend to participate uh, through through all hours of the day in that (laughs) because um, it's the worst possible outcome is if we come out on the other side with an economy that's already badly damaged and potentially looks like a you know, Great Depression type situation. And then we have, you know, people saying, oh, let's try to be more like Herbert Hoover in this moment. <laughs> um, well, or, or J. Edgar, if you want to pick your Hoovers. Um, <laughs> I've always had problems, and I think many people may uh, join me in this, in the conflation of the two terms debt and deficit. Uh, when the federal government runs a deficit, it is spending more money than it takes in in taxation. Debt is when it owes money to somebody, and it does that by uh, issuing bonds. Are the two things necessarily uh, tightly locked? No, they're they're tightly locked in the sense uh, that we have a convention of um, selling bonds when we run budget deficits. So the government auctions U.S. treasuries and we we call that government borrowing. And so when the government runs deficits, it sells treasury bonds and those treasury bonds become part of this thing that we unfortunately refer to as the national debt. So I will often tell people that, you know, we do not have a deficit problem. We do not have a debt crisis. We have a communications crisis. We have a language problem. It's the words that we use to describe what's happening that gives rise to all this fear and anxiety. When you use the word, not you, but when we uh, use the word deficit, that carries with it a connotation that automatically uh, resonates with people that something improper has happened. Something's missing. You turn on, yeah, something's missing. There's a shortfall. There's somebody did something wrong. If you turn on a sporting event and you're watching your team and the announcers say at halftime, 
oh, well, if the Lakers are going to come back and win this, they're going to have to overcome a 12-point deficit. <laughs> well, that's a deficit, right? You have to make up for that. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we're used to hearing that word. So when somebody says the government is running deficits, people think that's a terrible thing. But it's not a terrible thing because a deficit is just the difference between how many dollars the government is spending into the economy and how many it is subtracting back out through taxation. So if they spend 100 in and they tax 90 back out, we label it a deficit. And we say the government has run a deficit. We write a minus 10 on the government's ledger. What we forget is that if they put 100 in and only swipe 90 back out, then they've made a deposit. The deficit is a financial contribution to some part of our economy. Now, the question is, for whom, right? Mm -hmm. who, who, on whose balance sheet does that $10 now sit? And for what purpose? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a good deficit? But when you mention the debt, the debt is what happens after the, after the deficits are run. So now that the government has put that $10 deposit into the economy, it matches that deficit spending by selling a U.S. government bond called Treasury, a Treasury. And so they hold up this, tre figuratively, hold up this Treasury bond, and they say, this is a $10 Treasury bond. This, these dollars pay interest. The dollars that I put into the economy don't pay interest. Who would prefer to hold these dollars, the Treasuries? And sure enough, there are people who are gladly give up their non-interest-bearing dollars and swap them out for a U.S. Treasury. Now, the government does not need to borrow its own currency. The, the federal government of the United States is the issuer of the dollar. There's no reason economically to borrow its own dollars back. OK, so that's a voluntary thing that Congress has decided to do, that it wants to give people the option to trade up their dollars, if you like, mm -hmm. to swap out their deficit dollars for U.S. Treasuries. But because we call that borrowing and because we label it the national debt, it gets people very kind of twisted around where they start thinking of their own personal finances. They say, uh-oh, borrowing, mm -hmm. that's a bad problem, right? Uh-oh, debt, that's not going to end well. And so then the, the conversation, it's a conversation problem. It's an educational problem. It's, it's the problem of your grandchildren are paying for this. That's exactly right. So when they tell us, well, your share of the national debt, mm -hmm. they want us to think of that as our own personal liability, when in fact, it is for those of us who are lucky enough to own some of these things, they're not our liabilities, they're our assets. It's part of our savings. It's part of our wealth. We're holding those dollars in the form of a very safe, interest-bearing government security called a U.S. Treasury. It's a great thing if you're lucky enough to be someone who has enough money that they don't spend everything they make. They can set something aside and they want to invest in a, a very secure, interest-bearing asset. Just a, a, a momentary factual question. What percentage of treasuries are held by the Chinese these days? Um, they've got about a trillion dollars. So I think in total, depending upon how you want, if you want to go gross, like the entire enchilada, uh, I think about 40% is mm. held internationally. Japan holds about a trillion. China holds about a trillion. They had about twice that much not all that long ago. Mm. Um, but, you know, these countries, what happens is these countries export a lot of goods and services to the U.S. So in the case of China, they 
sell more to us than we buy from them. And so as a result, we are importing from China. We pay China with dollars. And the Chinese have the same option that any other holder of U.S. dollars has. They can hold on to their non-interest bearing dollars or they can trade them up in a sense for U.S. treasuries. And so what people refer to as, quote unquote, borrowing from China is nothing more than China saying, I don't want to hold on to my dollars in a checking account. I would prefer to keep them in a savings account. And so they buy treasuries. And that's all that's happening. But this language problem has us feeling, you know, insecure, vulnerable to a a hostile foreign um, country that, you know, oh, my God, borrowing from China, an adversary, you know, that puts Mm -hmm. us at risk somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, In the in the brief amount of time we have left, I'm going to shift a bit still on the subject of debt, though, but um, real debt, because as you indicate, um, the United States doesn't have to borrow. It can it can never run out of its own currency because it owns the manufacturing facility that that pumps it out metaphorically speaking. But there are countries that do have actual debts uh, that are actually borrowing, the countries of the European Union, because they don't make their own currency. And um, countries which, uh, whether they make their own currency or not, are um, indebted internationally because of the un- underdeveloped, we used to say, nature of their economies. I'm talking about the countries of uh, South Sub-Saharan Africa and the countries of the European Union, um, and the G20 just this week uh, announced uh, intention to pause the uh, debt repayments of the sub-Saharan countries and other other of the used to, what we used to call third world countries. Um, and a former colleague of yours, uh, Michael Hudson, um, has been in the Washington Post recently with an op-ed, um, an idea that he's been pushing for a long, for a long time, at least in other pages called a debt jubilee. That is to mm-hmm. say, a period where those kinds of debts are just forgiven because otherwise they crush economies. Um, I know this is not your field, this is his, but what's your opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I know Michael. I've known him for a long, long time. And one of his uh, famous lines is, debts that can't be repaid won't be repaid. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's exactly right. I mean, we can, the IMF and institutions like that can string investors, can try to string these countries along um, with conditionality and more lending uh, and, and extract as much as humanly possible out of them. But the more humane gesture, as Michael proposes, is to recognize that you know, these these developing countries, as you're referring to them, as we refer to them, they will remain forever developing if we don't allow them the space to move beyond the developing stage into the developed economy stage. And that is probably what is required. That is um, letting them out of the debt trap, finding a way to wipe the slate clean, let these countries start afresh uh, and to the extent possible help them find ways to avoid taking on debt that isn't denominated in their own individual currencies, because that's what locks them into this perpetual treadmill where once they're on it and they start borrowing in dollars, then they've got to orient their economy usually around exporting in order to earn dollars so that they can service dollar denominated debt. And that usually means that countries produce low value added goods and services and they never become 
developing economies that produce more high tech, high value added. So they don't become wealthy. And they don't, they're not producing mainly for their own populations. That's right. That's right. So much of the productive effort is oriented around producing in order to put things, you know, in containers and ship them elsewhere to be consumed and raise real living standards um, somewhere else just to get the dollars to hand them back over to creditors. Um, one one other question, because I have to let you go, and you've been very generous with your time today. Um, as you see the, the future, and I know you, you, you don't have a turban on with a, with a ruby in the center, is, is this as widely predicted going to be a time of international decoupling, deglobalization in that sense? Um, more manufacturing for the homeland, not only in this country, but in a lot of other countries that they, think, we've, we've seen the, the limits of long supply chains. I think maybe it will. Um, I, it, local and localism might be the, the word of the future there where whether it's you know food supply or uh, other kinds of domestic production building redundancies the problem this crisis well one of the problems the crisis exposes is just how um, thin the protective layer is when it comes to the supply chain and manufacturing and you know if we had some redundancies built in and we weren't wholly dependent upon certain countries and other parts of the world to manufacture face masks and ventilators and mm -hmm. medicines. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we had those redundancies here, at least we would have something to ramp up when these sort of dislocations happen. And and food is becoming a, a very big problem right now in the food supply chain. And so I think maybe that is the right thing. And I think, you know, if there's a silver lining in all of this, Maybe that's what it is. Isn't there a conceptual conflict, though, between redundancy and efficiency? And haven't we cast our lot uh, ideologically with efficiency? Well, we did cast our lot, but but I guess what I'm hopeful of is that we're that this crisis is demonstrating that at the cost of just in time production and some of the efficiency uh, surrounding the supply chain manufacturing that. This is not clearly efficient. What we are left with today is highly inefficient. So maybe there is a worthwhile trade-off to be made. Um, not saying that you shut down completely and seal borders and don't have uh, trade at all, but that you know you you try to balance the risks of over reliance on um, production and, and these just-in-time supply chains by building in some protective. Uh, infrastructure domestically and locally. Final question. You have a new book, The Deficit Myth. When's it coming out? June 9th. Okay. Right on schedule? Yeah. I mean, the who, who could have known? Uh, <laughs> but it, it turns out I think the timing is, is is pretty remarkable. So with any luck, it helps us to avoid the the question that you posed earlier, which is, you know, do we end up in a situation where after we, you know, demonstrate that we have the fiscal fortitude to spend money and deal with crises and emergencies? Are we going to revert back to, oh, I forgot that, you know, we don't have the power to do things anymore? Because once we get through this health crisis, we're we're going to find ourselves right back in the middle of a crisis that we were already facing, and that's the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. It isn't as if, oh, the, the crisis is over. Now we don't have to 
act with uh, with ambition and with force any longer. We're going to need all of the firepower and all of the commitment on the part of the federal government to continue to deal with the next emergency and the next emergency. Dr. Stephanie Kelton, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. One night Farmer Brown was taking the air Locked up the barnyard with the greatest of care Down in the hen house something stirred When he shouted, who's there? This is what he heard There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So calm yourself and stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us We chickens trying to sleep and you butt in and hobble, 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 hobble with your chin. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. You're stomping around and shaking the ground. You're kicking up an awful dust. We chickens trying to sleep and you butt in and hobble, 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 hobble. It's a sin. Tomorrow is a busy day. We got things to do. We got eggs to lay. We got ground to dig and worms to scratch. It takes a lot of setting, getting chicks to hatch. Oh, there ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself and stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here but us. Kindly point that gun the other way and hobble, hobble, hobble off and hit the head. God, it sounds serious this week, doesn't it? Deadline Richmond, Virginia. A Richmond diocese priest defied the bishop's order. And he started blogging again to help parishioners through the coronavirus pandemic. He's been told to pack his bags. Get out of Richmond. Richmond diocese bishop Carrie Nestout 
Remove Father Mark White from serving as pastor at two churches, effective immediately. That was Father Mark, two churches, White? This is, uh, if uh, White learned of his removal in an email from Bishop Nestout. White was pastor of St. Joseph's in Martinsville and St. Francis of Assisi, Frankie Animals to you and me, in Rocky Mount. He'd been ordered to remove his popular blog last year. The blog was critical. Oh, the blog was critical of a church's handling of its sexual abuse scandals. And Bishop Nestout threatened White to take down the blog or lose his job. White did remove the blog for a time, but as the coronavirus pandemic canceled church services, he got back online to provide help to parishioners through the uncertain time. In a press release online, Nestout said, White has been reassigned to chaplain of various prisons in the area. You know, the places where the virus is rampant. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now let's uh, check on the old warm thing. Offshore energy-producing platforms in U.S. waters of the Gulf of Mexico are emitting twice as much methane. That's a greenhouse gas that's more potent, but not as long-lasting as carbon dioxide. More, twice as much than was previously thought. That's according to a new study from the University of Michigan. Are there anybody protesting that yet up in Michigan? Get out of the university! Liberate us! Researchers conducted a first-of-its-kind pilot study sampling, pilot study sampling air over offshore oil and gas platforms. In the old Gulf of Mexico, their findings suggest the federal government's calculations are too low. UM's research found that for the full Gulf, oil and gas facilities emit approximately a half a teragram of methane each year. That's comparable with large-emitting oil and gas basins like the Four Corners region in the southwest United States. The effective loss rate of produced gas is roughly 3%, similar to large onshore basins, primarily focused on oil, and significantly higher than current inventory estimates. Offshore harvesting accounts for roughly one-third of the oil and gas produced worldwide, around the world, and these facilities both vent and leak methane. I'd rather leak than vent, I think. I don't know about you. Until now, only a handful of measurements of offshore platforms have been made. No aircraft studies of methane emissions in normal operations have been conducted. The EPA's annual inventory numbers for offshore emissions are not produced with the help of sampling. No, they just put their... Finger in the air, wet it, see if it smells like methane. The study, published in Environmental Science and Technology, identified three reasons for the discrepancy between EPA estimates and their findings. One, errors in platform counts. Offshore facilities in state waters, there are more than 1,300 of them, were missing from the U.S. inventory. Two, persisted emissions from shallow water facilities mainly those focused on natural gas, are higher than indicated by the inventory. And three, your three, large older facilities situated in shallow waters tended to produce episodic, disproportionately high spikes of methane emissions. These facilities, they uh, tend to have more than seven platforms apiece, contribute nearly 40% of emissions that consist of less than 1% of total platforms. If this emission process was identified correctly, it could provide an optical mitigation opportunity, the researchers said. 
in uh, plain English. Now you know, fix it. Use the warm. Oh, but now... Just a little news in the Olympic movement. Just a little produced by Jim Arisal III. Well, Tokyo Olympic organizers and the IOC are going to cut some of the extras out of next year's postponed games. That's an attempt to limit what's expected to be billions of dollars in added expenses. IOC member John Coates, who heads the inspection team for Tokyo, said that cuts were likely in areas such as hospitality and expensive live sites for public viewing. Quote, Do we need to make provisions for as much hospitality for the sponsors, the broadcasters, and the National Olympic Committees, he asked, suggesting coronavirus pandemic may dampen enthusiasm. A year from now? Come on. Still, uh, many of the broadcasters may not have as big a presence here of advertisers because of the economic downturn, he said. He mused. Coates talked about the difference between must-have features and nice-to-have accessories, which may be ruled out when the Olympics open next July. By the way, we were hearing all about how hot it is in Tokyo in July. They postponed it a year. They couldn't postpone it till August. No. Or September. No. It's July again. Back to the story, Coates also made it clear Tokyo organizers and the Japanese government will be absorbing the billions in added expenses like the Japanese government caused the epidemic. He said the IOC would make several hundred million dollars in an emergency contribution to help struggling international sports federations and national Olympic committees stay afloat. The money is not destined for the Tokyo organizers or the Japanese governments, which are actually preparing the games. We will not stand by and see our international federations collapse Coates said. We'll be sitting down. No, he didn't. Japan's obligation to absorb the added costs is stipulated in the host city contract signed in 2013 when Tokyo won won the games. Neither the IOC nor Japanese officials are offering cost estimates. Media reports in Japan suggest an added bill of 2 to 6 billion on top of the reported 12.5 billion. But a national audit says the figure is going to be twice that much, so that's Two to six on top of 24. You do the math. Literally. The IOC was expected to pay out about $600 million to federations this year. Proceeds from the Tokyo Olympics. Some federations rely almost exclusively on IOC contributions. That wasn't very good planning. A reporter for a Japanese broadcaster asked the organizing committee president if the IOC should pitch in on costs to help Tokyo. We're in the midst of studying and reviewing the additional costs. He said, of course, we know we'll have to pay what we have to pay. However, the general direction is reducing the costs to the extent possible. Tokyo's CEO, Toshiro Muto, promised to take a fresh look at the level of services we provide. Coach was asked to explain how Japan will be in shape to host the Olympics in 15 months. Tokyo's coronavirus is have been spiking 
And the Prime Minister has called for emergency measures, asking for people to stay home. We've given ourselves as much time as possible, said Coates, pointing out some wanted to reschedule for the spring. There was a factor to go as late as possible, but not into the football season. Because it's the Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one. Every day! And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. Hey, remember when um, (laughs) President Trump used to uh, warn us that um, immigrants into this country were bringing in diseases? Well, you know what? He was right. He just had the, the directional arrow wrong. Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate said this week a number of migrants on a deportation flight from the U.S. were infected with the coronavirus. Their fears the contagion in the sprawling U.S. migrant detention system run by ICE is spreading to Central America. Giamate said 12 randomly selected migrants who arrived in Guatemala on the deportation flight tested positive when examined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He suggested more on the flight had tested positive as well. Quote, a large part of it was infected, he said in a presidential address. That's a flight carrying 73 Guatemalans that left the U.S. for Guatemala City earlier this week. The Trump administration has pressured Guatemala to keep receiving deported migrants, despite growing concern there that returnees are bringing the virus with them and could infect remote communities. Only 400 detainees in the U.S. out of more than 32,000 have been tested so far. That's the testimony that the acting director of ICE gave to Congress this week. The House Committee on Oversight said that same official confirmed ICE does not routinely test detainees before deporting them. More than 1,600 people deported from the U.S. to Guatemala over the last month were allowed to go home and into voluntary, unenforced quarantine. Fears arising it may have seeded the Central American nation with an untold number of undetected cases, increasing its vulnerability to the pandemic. There have been 30 confirmed cases of COVID-19 among ICE employees working in the agency's detention facilities. Only on Monday did Guatemala begin testing every passenger who shared a flight with someone confirmed as positive. That same day, a plane carrying 76 people arrived on an ICE flight from Alexandria, Louisiana. A migrant who was feeling ill was tested and found to be infected, leading to tests for everyone else. 43 tested positive despite showing no signs of illness. And they are in medical quarantine. Jim Mate spoke while wearing a surgical mask. He said the CDC team also tested 12 of the passengers at random. On Friday, all tested positive. He said flights would be suspended until the U.S. certifies passengers on such flights are free of the virus. And he didn't even say you're welcome. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Oh, that, that report was from France 24, ladies and gentlemen. This copyrighted feature is broken. Now, so sorry. my favorite from last week, which we had to hold over because it, it kept developing. Act, Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, or Modley, apologized for calling the now ousted commander of the USS nuclear aircraft carrier stupid in an address to the ship's crew. 
Modley told the crew that their former commander, Captain Brett Crozier, was either, quote, too naive or too stupid to be in command, or that he intentionally leaked to the media a memo in which he warned about coronavirus spreading aboard the aircraft carrier and urged action to save his sailors, is what they are. He also accused Crozier of committing a betrayal and creating a big controversy in Washington by disseminating the warning so widely, although later reports indicated he sent it only to 10 officials. Modley then apologized to the Navy for his comment. Let me be clear, I do not think Captain Brett Crozier is naive nor stupid. I think and always believed him to be the opposite. I apologize for any confusion this choice of words may have caused. He also apologized directly to Crozier for any pain my remarks may have caused. Then, as a result of the ensuing firestorm, he resigned. He distributed one final memo to the fleet as as his last act as Navy Secretary. He distributed a memo which said, in the classic hard rock satire, rockumentary movie called This is Spinal Tap, there's a scene in which the lead guitarist, Nigel Tufnell, misspelled, is explaining how the band is able to take their sound to the next level. Does this sound like a familiar story to you? How many times in your Navy or Marine Corps career have you thought about or even suggested a different, better way of doing things? And the response has been, well, that's not how we do it. I guarantee that this has happened to you more than once. If not, you must not be in the Department of the Navy. Thanks for the spins. Sacramento Area Coffee Company Temple told its employees this week that protective face masks violate its dress code and that workers who cannot show up for shifts due to concerns over the virus pandemic should reach out to the unemployment department. The company owns several locations in the Sacramento region and sells its coffee at most supermarkets. It apologized for the email, but not before blowback on social media. Well, of course not before that. The public's response prompted Temple founder Sean Comisher to announce that he would be stepping down from his role with the company. He'd be giving 100% authority on all company-wide decisions to his director of retail operations. It's not a surgical position, by the way. The email should not have been sent out, he said, and was not approved by Temple Operations. It is not a reflection of any of our procedures and policies currently in place. Its contents were inexcusable. And we sincerely apologize. We, in recent weeks, a trio of popular dispensers of lifestyle advice, Drew Pinsky, Mehmet Oz, and Phil McGraw, have appeared on media outlets or digital video, downplaying the threat of the pandemic. This according to Variety. Pinsky, in, in sundry February and March appearances, suggested to followers the coronavirus would be, quote, way less virulent than the flu. Oz told viewers of Fox News Channel's Hannity earlier this week that having children go back to school might be, quote, appetizing, despite the fact it could potentially help spread the contagion and result in 2 or 3% more deaths. Pinsky apologized, noting that his comments were incorrect. Oz this week admitted he misspoke. And McGraw, Dr. Phil, appeared this week on Fox News Channel with Laura Ingram calling for the nation to get back to normal life, noting the United States does not choose to prevent automobile accidents or swimming pool deaths. In a video posted the next day, McGraw said, we need to safely, responsibly follow the science and get back to our lives as soon as possible. I don't mean to say that we need to push, run, just run out there, 
and start pretending that nothing has ever happened. I don't mean that at all. He acknowledged his use of auto accidents and swimming pool accidents were, quote, bad examples. Dateline Scotland. It's a big place, but Scottish Swimming has apologized to its aquatic community after an online training session with its elite athletes was crashed by a Zoom bomber who subjected around 300 participants to, quote, disturbing content. The event was hosted on notoriously insecure video conference application Zoom. It's faced a backlash from users worried about the lack of end-to-end encryption of meeting sessions and Zoom bombing, uninvited guests gaining entry and disrupting proceedings. Scottish Swimming sincerely apologizes for the incident that happened this morning during an organized Zoom event where the aquatics community were invited to work out. At the end of last week, we shared information about the workout across social media platforms. Unfortunately, the link was Zoom-bombed with disturbing content shared with circa 300 people. The video was immediately shut down. The incident referred to the police cyber crime unit, unquote, Scottish Swimming. Several American banks have been reporting service issues. While Americans are checking their balances for the federal stimulus checks, banks across the country say their websites, applications, and phone lines are experiencing problems under the high volume of traffic. First Third Bank, always love that name, posted that its applications and phone lines are experiencing intermittent and temporary issues. We apologize for the inconvenience and thank you for your patience. BB&T, another bank, reported problems with their mobile banking and adding, we understand how important it is for you to have access to your account info, especially now. The Alliant Credit Union apologized to a customer who criticized the bank for saying there were delayed response times when the website wasn't working. We apologize for the inconvenience while many people are attempting to view their federal stimulus tax, uh, checks, the bank said. Our team understands and is working hard towards restoring full access to online banking. A PNC spokesperson told The Hill that PNC customers are seeing intermittent mobile and care center access like other banks. This is the result of an unprecedented volume of customers, said the statement. Similarly, another bank, CEFCU, See me also apologize to customers for issues associated with online and mobile banking because of the extreme levels of traffic. A two-page ad that ran in the Sacramento Bee on Easter Sunday and Good Friday set off a flurry of emails to the city's daily newspaper about its overt anti-Semitic language. The response resulted in a printed apology two days after Easter. The um, Sacramento Bee issued a 10 paragraph apology. That's that's a lot of paragraphs for an apology. Our goal, read in part, is always to provide meaningful and valuable news and information to serve you and help us all live better lives through civil communication. The um, headline of the ad, an apology ad with anti-Semitic language is unacceptable. No known connection, but the company that owns the Sacramento Bee announced this week it is for sale. And the same ad appeared in another newspaper in another California city, Eureka. The Times Standard ran sponsored content with vaguely, sorry, thinly veiled anti-Semitic language paid for by a private individual. We apologize, said the Standard, without reservation to every reader and the community as a whole for having published this offensive and inexcusable language and will work hard to ensure this type of content never appears in the pages of the Times Standard again. Assuming that there will be pay. Sorry, they didn't say that. And to prove that to our new listeners in Durango, Colorado, that we will cover the local news too. 
The Durango Herald has removed Saturday's Action Line column from its website and regrets it was published. It targeted New Mexico visitors and offended many of our readers in the Four Corners. And the attorney of a man who went viral on social media earlier this year after slapping a Hawaiian monk seal has described his client's actions as a brief lapse of judgment. North Carolina attorney Blake Long said the man responsible has since paid state and federal fines. And the attorney apologized, saying his client was sorry for his immature, inexcusable actions. It's unclear how much he was fined, and the attorney doesn't make his client's name public. McDonald's in China has apologized and closed a restaurant for issuing a notice banning black people from entering amid the spread of coronavirus. Multiple reports have said the fast food chain said the ban on black people is not representative of its inclusive values. Although there is a Chinese TV ad now for a whitening cleaning product that has a a Chinese woman throwing a black man, probably her boyfriend from the looks of the ad, into the washing machine. To whiten him up. Dateline Chicago, the company whose weekend demolition of a former coal plant in Little Village near Chicago sent a massive cloud of dust into that neighborhood, apologized for causing anxiety and fear. The apology did not prevent the company from being sued for the act. The EU European Union Commission president has offered a heartfelt apology to Italy for not helping it at the start of its deadly coronavirus outbreak. Did not apologize to Greece for not helping during the other thing. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. That's it for this week's edition of the show. Back next week, or whenever you want it on your device of choice. And a lot of New Orleans piano music right now on the Harry Shearer channel at YouTube. Check it out. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. Thanks to Thomas Walsh and Pam Halstead, and thanks to you for listening. So long. So long.